Oh, it's a soft Oregon day. Not too hot, not too cold. You know, humidity is reasonably high, but it has a softness to it. An openness to it, an ease to it. And this is reflective often of the state of mind that begins to reveal itself. Incision. No, Dharma talks are, as I reflect on it, Dharma talks are full of declarative statements like that one. And a declarative statement is only of use if it provokes curiosity. So it's like there's a whole bunch of books in the library and each of them is a declarative statement until we pick them up and get curious about them and look into them. They really have nothing to do with us. So this text by Bodhidharma is a series of declarative statements about the way things are. In the pointing out tradition, they make declarative statements as a way of bringing your attention to. So that that toad used to be a symbol of fertility, and if you kiss it, you'll become a princess. And suddenly, people start looking at the toad and thinking. But for it to be alive, we have to make these comments by Bodhidharma personal. We have to make them interesting. We have to to digest them, as with any teaching. And really, they are questions. So with a declaration, uh, this is the way things are, you can get curious. Is that true? Is that really true? What if it were true? What if it weren't true? And curiosity that brings you into things is great doubt, great inquiry, and can become deeper and deeper. And the skeptical doubt that pulls you away from things and puts up blocks is an obstacle to practice. So Bodhidharma is talking now about awakening through principle and practice. Awakening. So what is awakening? He wouldn't be giving this whole little speech if there wasn't a basic assumption that waking up is a good idea or an advantage or worthwhile or a benefit. If it were of no benefit at all, why bother? So what is waking up? And I think there are many ways of, of trying to articulate the inarticulatable, but seeing things clearly might be one way. So if we are trying to see the world through cataracts or through dirty glasses or through a fog scuba lens, scuba mask, can we actually see the world clearly? In fact, people who have very slow-growing cataracts often 
are almost blind and not know it. Because they, they have accommodated little by little to their visual deficit. And it becomes normal. So, waking up, awakening to clarity in a way might be compared to cleaning your glasses or defogging your mask, having cataract surgery. And anyone who has had done those things, especially cataract surgery, they are always astounded at how much clearer and brighter the world is. You know, if we're cleaning our foggy scuba diving mask, it's just sort of normal to have it be clear again. But when we have a, when we've grown accustomed to fogginess, clarity is quite amazing. This is not all there is to awakening, but who would not want to have a clear vision? So then we have to reflect, well, what is the, the dirt or the fog or the, the dense optical material that occludes our vision, obscures our vision? Might include, it might occlude our arteries, but that obscures our vision. In spiritual terms, this particular fog is created by having the lens be um, made unclear because we're trying to see it through a lens of self. And there's not one. So how is it that our view of the world, of our life, of ourselves, becomes foggy and unclear? How how does that happen? One way of looking at it is that as we believe our thoughts and the fixed ideas they rest on, we, we see less and less. And if you just look at any political situation, people looking through the fog of their own righteousness, they see less and less of the whole picture. So how do we clean that lens of this particular obscuration? We come to Sishin. We look at the nature of mind. And we might see, we might have the experience of no thought. There is a place in us that is still and silent and spacious. Our kind of fundamental nature. We all know it. We all can touch it. We all have, have tasted it. It's just obscured by our belief. Beliefs. So one way is to touch that truth. 
and suddenly the lens is cleaned to some degree. There are many, many levels of seeing things, realizing them. Or it may be that we are practicing and we're sitting in the, in the zendo and we're, we're doing zazen and we are bothered by this incessant, uh, fragmented, disparate, conflicting series of thoughts and images. One way of cleaning the lens is just to see them as flickering, flickering lights. Just the way the mind works. Recently had encountered one very, very mature, experienced practitioner. And they said that in particular retreat, their mind was more scattered and fragmented than it had been in the last 40 years. And they were amused by it. They said, oh, I didn't even think that would be possible. And they weren't thrown off by it. They just said, oh, interesting phenomena. So to see our mind as really fluid, our thoughts as fluid, as flickering, Somehow we don't buy into them in the same way. We don't, we don't give them the same credibility. We don't give them the same weight. And as we hold them more lightly, our vision is clearer. And the third general way, I'm sure there are many other ways of articulating this, the third general way is to know stillness, to recognize stillness. There are times in retreat that everybody touches when the mind or the body becomes very still. You can feel it in the zendo. The whole zendo becomes very still for a little while. The nature of life is impermanent, of course, so it changes. But to touch the fundamental stillness and to recognize that all of the perturbations on the surface are simply waves on top of the ocean is another way of cleansing that lens. Now, how do we recognize that? Well, certainly in this particular situation, at this particular time, we do it by doing Zazen. And we do it by doing enough Zazen that we are able to actually begin to see how the mind is working, how our mind is working how our thoughts work, how our body is functioning. And there is nothing like being up against the wall with nothing else to bother you to really recognize that. Or as Anusha said, if you're curving like a snake all the time, moving around, suddenly you have to go through a straight bamboo tube, you learn something about the nature of curving, something about your nature when you're put up against particular challenge, when we're held in place by the schedule, we watch the ego writhe and twist and turn and complain, and, and we learn something about it. We come to Seshin to wake up. And waking up can be, if we're deeply asleep, and there's a, a bell or a sound, we can wake up with a jolt, and be discombobulated. We can wake up with a little anxiety, 
We can wake up with amazement. We can wake up with amusement. Lots of ways of waking up. And sometimes we can wake up a quarter, a half, or three quarters, at least on this scale. And so many people have tastes of waking up of one sort or another. Waking up to the nature of their own mind. Bodhidharma lays this out in a different manner. He says, many roads lead to the path, but basically there are only two, reason and practice. To enter by reason means to realize the essence through the instruction and to believe that all living things share the same true nature. And as he talked about, it's not a belief. You just recognize everything is flowing. Everybody has difficulties. Everybody sees the world through their own lens. You know, it's just the way things are. Which isn't apparent. And to believe that all living beings share the same true nature, which isn't apparent because it's shrouded by sensation and delusion, thoughts and fixed beliefs. Because the sensation has no... uh, uh, Um, charge to it. It's just a sensation. The charge comes as we interpret, conclude, conclude. We make decisions about it. Those who turn from delusion back to reality, who meditate on walls, the absence of self and other, the oneness of mortal and sage, and who remain unmoved even by the scriptures, are in complete and unspoken agreement with reason. Without moving, without effort, they enter, as we say, by reason. Now, a basic teaching that we have all heard many, many, many times from you know, many sources is that the world is one. That there is a, a unity. There is a, a oneness. There is, a, there is nature as a whole has a certain integrity to it. So how can Bodhidharma is saying there are two entrances, but it doesn't really make sense that here this great sage is going against the fundamental teaching of oneness. So these two entrances are basically the same thing. They're just different, two different ways of saying, pointing at the same thing. They're not two. But they each express that which is fundamental and liberating differently. So what are the basic principles of of dharma, of truth, of life that we all can recognize? Everybody. First, we're alive. Not so hard. Second, that part of that life is movement. Not so hard. But that movement is, means that things are constantly changing because they're moving. Seems pretty obvious. And that movement and that constant change is kind of a flow. It happens over time. And if we look a little more deeply, we begin to see that that flow is connected to the banks through which it's flowing, through the ground through which it's flowing, through the mind that sees the flow, that that 
flow of our lives is interconnected, intertwined with others. As you know, you could have that simple task of where did the Zafu we're sitting on right this moment come from? And you look back and 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 it comes to the whole world. There's no end. There's no beginning to it. But we are here, at least my assumption, is that we are here because we want to embody, to know, to taste, to have confidence in, to be able to live in accord with the principles of liberation and not just think about them. Not just think, oh, I read that in a book and I agree with it and therefore it's true and I'll put the book away. Now, how can we embody these fundamental teachings of Buddha Dharma, of, of impermanence, flow, inclusiveness, interconnectedness, emptiness? How can we embody them? Well, of course, we're always doing just that. So one answer is we already, when it's time to eat, we leave the zendo and we go to the cafeteria and we have our meal and we return. We hear a bell. We start or stop something. When someone bows to us, we return it. So from one vantage point, our ordinary life, our life of responsive connection is the great way to so what we do as life is practice what we do as practice is life in the Vajrayana tradition they say the the path is the fruit in the Zen tradition they say um Practice and realization are one thing. Practice is realization. Realization is practice. So we have to really ask, is it possible that something as ordinary as making our bed, washing our clothes, has something to do with liberation? And we regard that as ordinary life. But... For many people, ordinary life is not that. Ordinary life is being an autopilot. Ordinary life is being fueled by fear. Ordinary life is being worried about things we have no control over. Ordinary life is being driven by media. And how can that kind of so-called ordinary life have anything to do with the liberation, the freedom the Buddha speaks of. So we often have a misunderstanding of this particular word. Ordinary life. The ordinary life is, we're talking about, is is what is fundamentally, what is flowing smoothly, what what is natural. The sun comes up, the moon comes up, stars come out, trees 
flower and bloom and leaves fall. That's ordinary life. But the unordinary life is all of the stuff that we put over it, the glazing of mud that we put on top of it, of all of our fears and anxieties and compulsions. That's an extraordinary life. Not an ordinary life. And so when they, in some of the koans, they talk about ordinary mind is the way, ordinary life is the way, they're not talking about, you know, running around like, uh, like a rat on a treadmill. They're not talking about this, what we think of in our culture as ordinary life. They're talking about when the mind is clear and there is a fluid a fluidity to life, a responsive connection to life, that is ordinary. That is normal. That is liberation. And so from that perspective, awakening is not about I'm going to wake up to something else, but rather I'm going to wake up to the, the ordinariness, the naturalness, the flow, the freedom of things happen when it's time for them to happen. I breathe in when it's time to breathe in. I breathe out when it's time to breathe out. Speak when it's time to speak. The ordinary life that our culture tends to think about, about getting approval and getting insurance and having more pleasant experiences and going to Six Flags Magic Mountain or Disneyland or and you know having more experiences, and the more intense and the more varied they are, the better. That is not liberation. And I guarantee that if you were just sitting in one place, you would have a lifetime full of experiences. And if we're paying attention, a lifetime full of interesting experiences. Things come to us. We don't have to go get them. So wouldn't a healthy, ordinary life be have a, a smoothness and a responsive, a skillful responsiveness to the challenges that bring that are brought to us? The challenges each of us have. So in Sashin, in this period, in this week, in this day, just sitting and walking and resting and doing a little bit of work, just that brings challenges. Just that brings challenges. Shows the places where our minds have been stuck. Reveals our fixed beliefs. When we are metaphorically facing the wall, that is, we're not being distracted by all the world, we're actually sitting and kind of looking at what is, then, indubitably, a scattered mind, an aching back, knees, restlessness, hopelessness, all come up, all are normal, all are challenges to be responded to, all are just opportunities to know how our mind works. And the challenge is, from this vantage point, to look at our particular challenges 
through the lens of Dharma. Dharma means, just means truth. Through the lens of truth. And what are the basic truths? Impermanent, flow, inclusiveness, interconnectedness, emptiness. So when we encounter uh, an obstacle, an injustice, something wrong, without ignoring it, without turning away from it, we respond to it, but we respond to it with a mind that sees beyond the surface. mind that sees beyond the surface. We've talked many times about the, the Buddha eyes or the Dharma eyes. That there's a, an ordinary way of seeing things. We see the mechanical, the, the Newtonian way that uh, <clears throat> physical objects interact and affect one another. And, and then we can see a little below that or a little bit above that because we can see it in a very minute way about how this particular clock works or how this engine works. And then we can begin to see, well, how does that connect to the larger, larger world? And we can see all that in an interconnected Newtonian way. Or we can look underneath it a little bit and see the motivations, see the emotions, see the flavor that is of the perceiver or of the action. We see other people, and if we're seeing on the surface, their clothes reveal who they are. But with our eye a little more refined, seeing the nature of life and not through the lens of self, we can begin to see what are the emotional flavors or what is the aspiration of this person. We can begin to see a little more deeply. If we see more deeply still into things, we begin to see that they are part of, they are fluidity itself. That this particular way of presenting is a fluid, temporary way. And that this, this situation, this person, this being will flow, will be different. Might be dead, might be rich, I don't know, but they'll be different. They'll continue to evolve, they'll continue to change. And if we look a little bit deeper, then we see that everything is interconnected. That everything we see, hear, smell, taste, and touch is affecting and is affected by my mind. How we see things shapes how they are in our world. And if we see things a little more deeply yet, we can see the spacious emptiness of things. The spacious emptiness, the, the, the play, the play of the cosmos, the play of energy, the play of the field. And perhaps if we see things more deeply, we can see with an inclusive mind that includes all these different levels.
We each live in different worlds. Everyone sitting in this room right now is in a different world. There are people here who are in great bliss. And there are people here who are in a hellish realm. And there are people here who are bored to death. And there are people here who are excited and interested. They're different worlds. So being able to see that there are different worlds, different universes lie in all quarters, is part of the <clears throat> part of waking up. He continues, to enter by practice means to refers to the four all-inclusive practices. All-inclusive is an interesting word there. Suffering injustice, adopt, adapting to conditions, seeking nothing and practicing the Dharma. So let's look just for a moment at suffering injustice. First, it's important to say, what is injustice? What is justice? It doesn't make any sense unless we have some understanding of what justice is. The dictionary says justice is the quality of being just, <laughs> of fairness, the principle of moral rightness, decency, conformity to moral rightness in action or attitude, righteousness. So we can look at justice, rightness, Maybe, maybe right in this sense means healthy. This we can look at it from a personal level, from a social level, from a cosmic level. From a personal level, right here in Sishen, justice often boils down to: Is it going the way I think it should go? And it's not. That's not right. That's unjust. So, if justice, on one sense, means if things are agreeing with my view of them, then I always view them as pretty just, because I'm right. When the world is going the way I think it should go, according to, to my view and values, I think, well, everything is just, just fine. But, so when we're watching a movie and we see the, the villain, villainess, we see her just deserts, her comeuppance, her retribution, we think, oh, that's fair, good, good for, good for the universe, good for the hero, heroine. may not be particularly fair from the villain's perspective, but definitely from when we agree with it, looks good. So if we are sitting in Sashin and we subtly or overtly think that the way things going is not right, according to me, then it's a kind of injustice in our mind. Because if it were <clears throat> just, if it were true, then I wouldn't have so much 
pain, discomfort, discombobulation, despair, whatever dish you want. So, suffering, injustice, actually occurs when we make it, this personal level. When we decide, I shouldn't be feeling, I don't want to feel, I don't like to feel that, then we're creating a kind of injustice in our minds and we suffer. And we have the ability to shift that suffering. When we recognize every experience has importance, every experience has, is a teaching, every experience is coming towards us, and we have an opportunity to become more intimate and more alive. And during session, everything that happens is vitally meaningful. Then there's no injustice. So suffering injustice means partly just suffering our own deluded views. It's not quite the, the, the reading that the text implies. The text implies that, you know, I'm just going along, just being really, really doing fine, and then something terrible I don't like happens to me, and, and I have no recourse but to dislike it and to suffer. I don't think it's a very skillful reading. It is true that difficult things happen to very good people. That is life. The thought that difficult things shouldn't happen to really good people, that is delusion. Especially they shouldn't happen to me. So. Suffering injustice in this way is a kind of delusion. It's a, a sign that we are not looking clearly. We're not seeing clearly. No, we have to, to take our personal experience and we also have to look and see, is this apply to, to society in general or is there other, other factors? Here. My personal experience is if there's a pain that I don't like, there's a kind of injustice that happens. Someone <clears throat> takes away my goat or someone stomps on my foot and I don't like it. It shouldn't happen that way. And there's a kind of injustice. But who says the universe shouldn't take away your goat? or your cat, or your elephant, whatever. Who says your feet are precious and shouldn't be walked on? Only you. And sometimes we think that just getting agreement, oh yes, you know, goats are sacred, nobody should take my goat, and I want to take a vote here in this room and make sure that we're all voting so that we all agree that goats are sacred, and therefore it shouldn't happen, and therefore when it does happen, when the universe decides your time with your goat is ended, it's wrong, and we're suffering injustice. Agreement is not truth. 
as you all know, we can, as a country, agree that a crazy person is sane. It's just agreement. It doesn't make them sane. On a social level, what is injustice? We have to look at this from a practice perspective. The, the practice view is we, we want to practice kindness. We want to practice integrity. We want to, to practice honesty. We want to practice responsiveness. We want to practice being alive and connected and engaged. So first off, there is my interaction with things. Am I genuinely interacting with the things that I feel like need to be met? Or am I just sitting back and judging? It's one view. And then we have to ask, well, are my judgments right? Is the way I view the world the best way, the only way? Or is it possible there are other ways of viewing the world? Is it possible that other wor- there are other worlds? Is it possible that I'm misinterpreting things? Is it possible that things might have a different outcome than my fears encourage me to have? Is it possible that the, the great mystery is unfolding in ways that I don't understand? And there's something dynamic and alive that's going on which is beyond my ken. And then if we look at the universal level and we ask those kind of questions, is the universe, has the universe, has nature as a whole, does it make mistakes? Has nature, the universe as a whole, is there a place that it's right and a place that it's wrong, a place that it's doing its job well and a place it's not doing its job well from, the, from that side of things, not from my personal side? And just imagine, does the universe have right and wrong in it? Well, yes, I'm doing okay on Mars, not so doing so okay on Earth. Interesting thought. So, suffering injustice needs to be looked at, both what is suffering, what is injustice, what is justice. And suffer can mean in the sense of just bearing, just bearing it. It could mean tolerating it. But I don't think that's very skillful in that way. Although everybody who comes to session, I guarantee you, learns patient endurance. It is a skill. And I guarantee everybody in this room is developing the skill of patient endurance. It's part of the process here. So let's take this a little bit further. There is only one Dalai Lama. There's only one Pema Chodron, one Dan Brown, as far as I know, and one of you. So what is what we regard as common is basically for human beings, body structure, information operating system, basic functions, eating, sleeping, excreting. Other than these kind of essential principles, we are all incomparable 
we can't be compared. It's like apples and pomegranates. They're both fruits of a certain size, but they're in totally different realms. They have different attributes. The fruit is unique. Each of us, each of you, is absolutely unique. There's not a doppelganger among you, or else there's not a doppelganger of yours in the universe. A replica, a copy, all the studies with with, uh, paternal twins, twins of the same DNA, they're all different. So from each of our perspectives, the world appears differently. And some people in this room, as I mentioned earlier, were sitting in a very hazardous, dangerous place yesterday. And some people were just quite totally normal and totally peaceful yesterday. Who was right? Who was wrong? Some people are sitting in the zendo surrounded by Dharma friends, and some people are sitting in the zendo with a bunch of strangers who are possibly threatening. And some people are just sitting with a bunch of lumps. (laughs) And some are surrounded by bodhisattvas and sitting in deep samadhi. And others are just surrounded by friends and co-workers. No one has our particular constellation of experiences. No one who comes to Sishin has the same trajectory, the same texture, the same uh, experience as anybody else in the room. And even though it looks like everybody is sitting in nice little straight rows with custody of the eyes and sitting very still, nice, very good, good job, not easy to do. If we imagine that what is going on in those people down the road it's what we think it is. We are really sadly wrong. And so we can't compare our experience, our session, with anyone else in a, and be accurate. Every comparison, certainly in terms of personality, insight, experience, is off. We do compare ourselves with our future perfect self. We do compare ourselves with that future perfect self in deep samadhi, who's awakened, who's wise, who's calm, who's clear, who's at ease, who's flowing with all circumstances, who's responding with skill and equanimity. We do compare this with that fantasy person. And of course, that fantasy person never comes to be, because the future is always different. So we're sitting in Sashin, and rather than suffering injustice, we're sitting in Sashin suffering, sitting in Sashin experiencing, sitting in Sashin and being with our particular unique life. And the particular things that bubble up in our particular unique life have, are important for us.
And the things that bubble up in our particular unique life are not wrong. They're gifts. They're particular things that when our mind is still enough, when we are sitting facing ourselves enough, somehow we begin to see the machinations of the mind or we begin to see the, the flavor of the emotions or we begin to see the texture of the personality. So we're sitting in Sishin here, entering, waking up the Great Way. And we wake up the Great Way by being in an ordinary mind, by accepting, by appreciating, by being generous, by... You can imagine, how would it be if you were sitting here not comparing yourself in any way to other people? I mean, you might say someone is taller or shorter. That's, But as far as the quality of their, their mind, if you were sitting here and you had no comparison at all, there was nobody in the room who, was, who could be compared to better or worse than you because they're all so different. And you're just sitting in the room, the only unique one like yourself. There's a confidence that comes from that. There's a satisfaction that comes from that. There's a stability and an equanimity <coughs> and ease that comes from that. Even our restless, jagged thoughts are a gift when we're not comparing. So, in this room, right now, with the mind open, with the mind awake, with the mind alive, we're aware of, we can be aware of the whole room and all these unique people, all these universes, all these lives that are there, and we can hold them all with a calm, clear acceptance. And of course, we have to include ourselves in that people in the room. And that's not acceptance of our um, craziness, our twisted behavior in the past or future. It's really accepting of the, the nature, the, the beingness, the isness of this person right here, right now including you. And the foundations of a healthy human life is this kind of view. Meeting our challenges as normal. And having the acceptance that is the foundation of love run our life and acceptance in that way does not mean we don't respond to things. That's part of acceptance, is we respond. So don't, don't think acceptance is, a, uh, is a, a mushroom on a log, just sitting there. So please, have great faith, as I often say. Recognize that what is happening and has happened, just fine. 
just fine. Recognize that we're trying to see more clearly to wake up. We're not trying to get rid of the things that we don't like. If we wake up from a dream, the dream naturally does what it does. So have confidence that in this process of sitting here and looking at the nature of mind, you will wake up. You will recognize reality. And it might be that that from a comparative perspective, which is not helpful, you think you woke up a little bit, and other people you think woke up a lot. I don't know how you would ever tell. And some people you think wake up dramatically, and some people wake up with kind of a subtle, a subtle simmer. Well, maybe so. Not important. So we have practiced steadily, steadily. There's a, a calm ease in the Zendo. Please take that calm ease, <clears throat> not as a conclusion, not as, well, that's as, that's as much as I can see, but rather as a foundation for investigation, a foundation for curiosity, a foundation for, well, how big is the mind? Where does the mind come from? What is it that's alive? Take the calm, clear mind, the samatha aspect of practice, and carry it forward so that you can investigate reality and find and wake up to liberation.